So one of the things that I appreciate most about Scripture and about the Bible is the way that a text can speak into our lives at different stages of our lives, at different times, at different uh, experiences, different circumstances of our lives. That's part of also why we read Scripture with other people. We learn their perspectives and hear what they have to say and what they, um, what they see in the text and what they take from the text. And it's interesting because if we go back a few hundred years, this is the major part of why the introduction of movable type in the West was so important. The Gutenberg Bible in 1455 began the distribution of Scripture into the hands of people. Remember, there were, uh, the only copies they had before that were handwritten, and so there were not many copies. And obviously at the beginning it was first the wealthy who had access, the royalty, right? And then the clergy. But then it became more broad and more wide distribution. And this became important to people and has been important. I I remember talking to a friend not that long ago whose father had been a Bible salesman, a door-to-door Bible salesman, but then he was a bit of a capitalist. And as the Catholic uh, community was coming up um, from Mexico into the migrant farm workers, he would go and uh, and sell Bibles to these, these people who did not have much money, these farm families, but for whom owning a Bible was an important part of their Catholic church. And I found this fascinating I found it absolutely amazing that the amount of money that there was in this industry of getting the Bible to these people for whom it was important to have. And of course, we're all familiar with the hotel room Bibles, right? The Gideons. The Gideons International, did you know they distribute more than 70 million Bibles a year? That's two Bibles every second on average. It's amazing. In over a hundred languages, they've, they've distributed more than two billion Bibles since they've been around. It's a lot of Bibles. Even more accessible, many of you have Bible apps on your phones. Betty Banovic always wants to make it clear that she's not texting during church. She's reading her Bible, right, Betty? That's right. Most, that's what she tells me, at least, so I, I, but I believe her. But again, why does this matter that the Bible is so readily accessible? Why does it matter? In our denomination, the Presbyterian Church's Book of Order, it says, The Scriptures bear witness to the Word of God, revealed most fully in Jesus Christ, the Word who became flesh and lived among us. They bear witness to Jesus This is why we proclaim, that's the word we use, proclaiming the scriptures. It's why we read and we study the scriptures during worship and why we're invited to read them in our own lives. Now, I know that I've talked with many of you who are very much like that man who had the Bible at home and in a box. And I know that for many people, reading the Bible and looking at the Bible simply hasn't been a part of your, uh, of your life or experience. I, I get that. I understand it. I think it can be a bit intimidating. And so many people get excited and they say, all right, pastor's been talking about the Bible. I'm going to go home and I'm going to start with Genesis. And they get excited because, oh, there's stories they know, they recognize, they, they're, they're all on board. And then it's kind of like when a car is driving along and it hits sand, You know what happens when a car hits sand? It just kind of stops. 
And that's some of these books of the Old Testament that stop you in, their, in your tracks. They're not boring, I will say. They're like that rock, but it takes a little bit of work to crack through that outer, outer surface. And so what happens is people get excited, they read these stories, and then they hit the brakes and stop. And I know there are some people who can do this, who can read the Bible straight on through and read it kind of linearly, but I, I want to take a moment and offer that there are more helpful ways to do it. For some people, it's getting together with a couple of people, a small group of people, a Bible study, to discuss a specific book or a specific section together. For others, our Wednesday uh, Bible study has been helpful as we've gathered in, in a group uh, to look at the Sunday text, the text for the upcoming, uh, upcoming Sunday. Another way would be the opposite, right? After a service, to meet with some folks, say, hey, let's, let's grab brunch and talk about the text or talk about the sermon. There are a lot of options. And I'm bringing this up this morning to share a personal experience of that because this morning's text was one of the very first that had a strong impact on me and my faith when I was in high school. And friends, at some point we know this, developmentally, if our faith is going to stick with us, if it's going to be something we carry through our lives into adulthood, our faith and our faith practices have to shift from being what we're told to do by our parents, by our church, by our society, from, from being what we're told to do to what we want to do, what we desire to do. And for me, this began in high school when I was invited to participate in a Bible study of the book of James. I wasn't forced to go by anyone. I chose to go. The group was led by a couple of adults from the church who, who acknowledged from the beginning that they didn't have all the answers and that they were joining us on this exploration. And we met weekly. We followed a study guide reading the letter of James. And our text this morning, the one that Rogers read for us this morning, it stayed with me and it shaped my life in the church going forward. And it was really one verse, that, that last verse. The verse was James 2.17. Faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Faith without works is dead. As a ninth grader, this sentiment was extremely compelling to me. It spoke to my questions about how we each play a role in the world and what does the church have to say about that and what does, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in a world filled with need. It also helped me make sense of the reasons behind so much of what Christ taught, commanded, instructed. It made faith a little more concrete, and it invited me, as it invites all of us, into the living, breathing, active faith. And as I've said many times before, including just last Sunday, one of the strongest attributes of this congregation is your understanding. And it's an understanding that has been a part of this church for generations, understanding of this very reality that the church must be about action, action. Whether it's supporting the work of local food pantries, contributing to disaster assistance in the wake of earthquakes and hurricanes and refugee crises, action is integral to the life of this congregation. It's like, I want to respond to James. Yes, James, we know faith without action is dead. Or let's spin this a little more positively, right? The church, when it serves, when it loves, and when it seeks to those who have less, the church is then alive. The church and our faith are alive when we connect God's love for us with our love for the world. And so, 
my friends, when I've been reading and preparing our text for our service today, there was a part of me that wanted to just stop and say, you know what? James 2.17, the last verse, that verse that's guided so much of my life personally, it really doesn't need to be taught to this congregation. You're already living it, and you're living it well. Keep on going, keep serving, keep loving, keep contributing to these needs in the world. I sort of feel like the people who are handing out the little water cups to the marathon runners as they fly by, right? Don't let me stop you. Here you go. Here's some water. Keep going. They know what they're doing. But then I stepped back. I stepped away from that verse at the end, that verse that's been such a focus and that is a known focus within the Christian culture. And I read the text again and again. I went to different places, different spots in the church, different spots outside, and I read the text again, over and over again, and tried to have new eyes reading it. What is the text saying for us today, in today's world? And I kept coming back to the very beginning of the text. This is the first verse in our reading today. My brothers and sisters... Do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? James then comes out with a a pretty dramatic example. It's a hypothetical, right? He tells of two people walking into the church, one with gold rings and fancy clothes, and the other is a poor person in dirty clothes. James basically says to his audience, look, when you make space the person with the gold rings and the fancy clothes and you push aside the poor person, this is favoritism. Or later the word is translated as partiality. He says you're treating people different based on their appearance, on what you see. And that's really what this word favoritism means here. There there isn't a good translation, a smooth English translation of this word. When I hear the word favoritism, when I see that word, I tend to think it means treating one person better than others for some purpose that I've got, right? And probably some gain to me. That's what I think of as favoritism. You might think of something different here, but, but the Greek word is very different from this. It's a combination of two words that literally, when taken can literally mean taking face, taking face. It derives from the words, these are two Greek words, prosopon and lambano, and together those words are, like I say, to, to take or I take one's face. Well, what, is, what does that mean? We, we have a phrase, right, taking things at face value or, or observing things as they are. So when James uses this hypothetical example of the rich person and the poor person, really James is focusing on the decisions we make when we see people, when we take in their face, the outward appearance, decisions we make about them based on what we see and then how we express this word partiality or, or favoritism based on what we see. Now, throughout the letter of James, the writer is pulling in old law, Old Testament law, from, from both the, the scriptures and from Jewish ethical instructions. And this one, the prohibition on partiality, on favoritism, comes directly from these ancient Levitical laws, the old Jewish laws. And these laws essentially say that it goes against God 
to look at people differently based on their outward appearance or based on our assumptions of them and based on our sense of feeling different or separate from them. This type of of discriminating eyes, especially as he describes it in this hypothetical example where the man with gold rings is placed in the position of honor and the one with dirty clothes is relegated to the floor, this type of discrimination is seen by James to be among the worst kind and in violation of Jewish law. And on first reading, you look at it and you think, well, that's kind of strange. Why is he, why is he honing in on this so much? And he explains himself. And in verse 8 of chapter 2, James refers to the law being broken as the royal law. He says, when you do this, you're breaking the royal law. And what does he mean by the royal law? The royal law is the same law that Jesus repeatedly teaches and models. And friends, you know this law already. You heard it within that text. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, right? We know this law. And I think we tend to understand it. Help people. Help my neighbor. Be kind to people. Do good. This is how we we sort of see this law normally. But James goes on to say that when when we're partial, when we look at people and make decisions based on what we see, he says we're violating that royal law, the, the, the law that Jesus talked about so much, the most ancient of laws at that time, but also among the most important because Jesus set it apart, this law to love our neighbor. We're violating it when we have prejudice in how we see others. And these prejudices, we know this, they're the source of so many problems in our world today. These divisions and our inclination toward partiality create so many of the problems that lead to discrimination and separation and segregation and ultimately suffering. And the hard part is, it's our private judgments even, the ones that we sometimes don't even realize. It's these judgments that impact how we treat others. And it's this that James is writing about. He acknowledges that we don't fully understand how our judgments impact our actions. But he says we need to be more aware of how our behaviors impact those around us. Following God and being ones who love our neighbor, being ones who uphold the most important of laws, the royal law, means being ones who seek to love without judgment. And for different people, for each of us, this is going to mean different changes, different work in our lives. James invites us to examine how we see and treat people, people with less power and people who are different from us. Jesus invites us to examine what it means to love our neighbors who are refugees and immigrants, our neighbors who are people of color, our neighbors who are members of the LGBT community, all of our neighbors all of our neighbors. Because the moment that we are comfortable with loving certain neighbors, but ignoring or not loving other neighbors, in that moment we find ourselves doing exactly what James warns against. James is writing fundamentally in this letter about how to live as a person of faith how to have a faith that is alive, how to live in the world 
and be someone who reflects God's love to the world. It's a, it's a how-to guide. How to reflect God's love to the world. A God who, thank goodness, looks at each of us, looks at you, and sees a beautiful creation, a beautiful person created by God and loved by God. And then God invites us, invites each of us to see the world, to teach ourselves to learn to see the world with the same eyes of God. And this is hard work. It's hard work that many of you did last year when you learned more about the, cha- uh, the challenges faced by African Americans in America today. Whether you watched a documentary like 13th and gained an awareness of how the criminal justice system and particularly the past 150 years of post-slavery incarceration have impacted the black community. Or for those of you who read difficult books and had challenging discussions with others in this community, Many of you were willing to do this work of trying to readjust how you see and live in the world. For others, it's been learning about and, and, and learning about and, and trying to understand the experiences of people of other sexual orientations, hearing their stories and struggles, those who are in your family or perhaps friends learning about them and and learning to see God's fingerprints in them as who they are and who God created them to be. And, And all of this, this is what we're called to do, to learn and to grow and to do the hard work of being people who truly love our neighbors, all of them. Earlier in the letter of James, and, and the, this book, the, the letter of James, is often, it's, it's often one that gets criticized, and it gets criticized especially by those who say, why is he talking so much about works, about action, about things you do? Isn't, isn't our faith about faith? Isn't it about what God does in our lives? And the answer is, absolutely, absolutely. But these instructions that James is offering, he doesn't just throw them out there in a vacuum. In fact, earlier in the letter, he's setting the stage. And and again, you know, last week I didn't talk about it much, but in the text there were phrases like, be slow to anger, quick to listen, slow to speak. And we did talk a bit about being doers of the word. And today, again, James asks us to consider those who have less than we do or maybe in a position of less power than us. So yes, much of this letter is about doing. It's about action. But there's something I don't want us to lose sight of in this letter. James never loses his focus on God's role in helping us become and be the doers of the word. He repeatedly tells his readers, this is hard work, yes, it's challenging and tiring and confusing and hard. James acknowledges it throughout the letter. But he reminds us that we are guided by God in all of this. Ask God, James writes, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly. Ask God and it will be given you. And so part of our faith journey is is coming before God and saying, God, I want to love this world like you do. But acknowledging also that we can't do it without God. That we continually come back to God to say, God, 
I want to love the world like you do. And recognizing that it is through God's grace, it is through God's grace that we are able to bring God's love into the world. And you've got fellows on the journey, fellows around you. But dear friends, the good news is that you've got a God who is all around you, guiding your path, ready to walk with you, even in the hard work of loving your neighbors. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.